0: Good morning, as I mentioned before, my name is Dan, I'm uh, the worship pastor here, and I have the great joy and the great privilege to share God's word with you this morning. So if you have your Bible, please turn to 1 Timothy, 1 Tim- Timothy chapter 3 is where we're going to hang out. We are in a sermon series through this book, and so we're going to be starting in verse 1 Timothy 3, starting in verse 14. You know... Your family's road trip probably looked a lot different than mine. Well, what do you mean by that, Dan? Okay, so uh, my family would periodically play games, maybe. We would listen to cassettes. We'd listen to the Chronicles of Narnia on, on cassette. Uh, we would talk. But I, I come from a long line of introverts and a family of introverts. So more often than not, we'd just sit in silence. It was glorious. It was wonderful. We would just sit and enjoy the silence. I try to do that now with my wife and two kids. And they're like, Dad, please, let's turn on the radio or something. And I'm like, ah, okay, fine. So we have some music. But on these really long car rides, we would listen to music. Dad would finally bust out this... this GPS it was like this, like first gen GPS is this giant brick of a thing, but it also played music, and so he had uploaded all of his music onto this GPS. And here's the deal: we could we could listen to anything I wanted to listen to, but it had to be on my dad's GPS. As a kid, I was like, "Oh, that's so lame," but as an adult with two children, I'm like, "That was brilliant! Good job, mom and dad! Kudos to you." Well, anyway you know how mp3 players will organize music alphabetically and the first song on dad's mp3 player was aaron tippins you've got to stand for something you may have heard this just country jam right so here's the first verse and chorus of this song now daddy didn't like trouble but if it came along everyone that knew him knew which side that he'd be on he never was a hero or this county's shining light, but you could always find him standing up for what he thought was right. He said, you got to stand for something or you'd fall for anything. you you got to be your own man, not a puppet on a string. Never compromise what's right and uphold your family name. You've got to stand for something or you'll fall for anything. Now, Aaron Tippin almost gets it right. You're saying, Dan, what are you talking about? That's a great country song. Well, as Christians, we don't just stand for something or what we think is right. Christians, we stand on the unwavering, absolute truth of the gospel. And that's the big idea here in this passage. The Apostle Paul is telling Timothy in the church at Ephesus, Christian, stand for truth. Christians stand for truth. What we're going to do is read the passage. I'm going to pray for us. And we will study God's word together. So we're in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 14. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Let's pray. Father, you are holy, holy, holy. In this vastness of the universe, you hold everything together. God, every breath that we take right now is by your sovereign hand. And God, we should approach you with fear and reverence, but those who are in Christ can approach you with confidence. We can approach your throne through your son, and we can cry, Abba, Father. So God, as we hear your word, may we come to it humbly, May we cast off any worries, any fears, and may we give them to you. And God, may we fix our mind and our attention on your truth. And God, may the gospel in Jesus be more beautiful and more believable. And God, may we leave changed this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So in verse 14, in the first half of verse 15, we see... The call of the church. The call of the church. And in the start of verse 14, the Apostle Paul says, I hope to come to you soon. So what's going on here? What's the context? Well, the Apostle Paul has been recently released from a Roman prison. And Timothy, he is a young pastor, and he's serving a church in Ephesus. And Ephesus is in modern-day Turkey. And what the Apostle Paul wants to do is he wants to go. He wants to encourage this young pastor. He also wants to deal with some theological issues within the church at Ephesus. But the Apostle Paul doesn't know what the future holds. So he says, you know what? I'm writing this letter as an encouragement and, and for theological clarity for you and your church. And so we see a longing in Paul, but we also see in the latter half of verse 14 and verse 15 the purpose of this whole letter, the purpose of the book of 1 Timothy, that you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. The Apostle Paul calls the church the household of God, and I think this is a beautiful description of the church, because in Romans 6, we see that we are slaves to sin, That we are hopelessly lost and in bondage in our sin. And there's nothing we can do to save ourselves. There's not enough good deeds that we can do to save ourselves. We are hopelessly enslaved and in love with sin. Well, God saw our helplessness. He came to earth fully God, fully man. His name was Jesus. He was the sinless Christ. And because we're sinners, we deserve to die. But Jesus died in our place, and in his death, he redeemed us or bought us out. So technically, we're slaves to God now. But here's the beautiful truth of the gospel. Here's the life-changing truth of the Bible. God doesn't leave us as slaves. When we repent and confess Jesus as Savior and Lord, we are adopted into the family of God. And we're not like some weird red-headed stepchildren, okay? We are heirs with Christ, and we have an everlasting inheritance. And honestly, this sounds too good to be true, right? Like, it's like, man, how can this be possible? The Holy Spirit seals us and assures us of this truth. So we were lost, we were enslaved, we were orphans. But now, through Christ, the church is made up of brothers and sisters in Christ. So what, what is the Apostle Paul saying in this? He's saying, Christian, live worthy of your new name. Live worthy of the gospel. Because, honestly, how is the church at Ephesus living right now? Well, they're kind of like the family in Cat in the Hat, right? Okay, I have a -a three-and-a-half-year-old. I have a one-year-old. These are the examples you're getting, so just hang with me, all right? Just hang in there. So you know the cat... He comes in, and he tries to, like, start a party with these kids on a rainy day. And he brings in thing one and thing two. And thing one and thing two just tear up and raise ruckus in the house. And, like, the fish is, like, trying to be the voice of reason. He's like, hey, stop. And as a kid, I was like, man, the fish is so lame. As an adult, I'm like, guys, listen to the fish. He knows what's going on, right? In the same way, the church at Ephesus has let false teachers in And these false teachers are teaching heresy. And the Apostle Paul is saying, hey, stop. Push back against heresy and hold fast to the gospel. Live in a manner worthy of your new name. So, a point of application for us, CBC. Are we living and are we behaving well within the household of God? Well, how do we do that? How do we practically live that out? Number one, are we actively pushing against idols in our lives? You know, an idol is a good thing, but turns into a God thing. Our our idols could be relationships, our idols could be our children, our idols could be our jobs, our idols could be our 401Ks, our idols could be success. They're good things, but they can so easily turn into God things. In a corporate sense, as a church, are we letting Preferences become idols? Are we letting music styles become idols? Are we letting how we do ministry become idols? You know, ministry and music are just tools. And they are good things, but we are so prone to let them be God things. So let us push back against idolatry. Are we also pushing back against false teachers? You know, I I love Pastor Tim, and I'm so thankful I get to serve with him each week. And he is helping us think uh, with theological clarity. And he's helping us to, to know hey, who should we be reading? Who should we be in, encouraging and informing our Christian faith, right? Hey, and it's Pastor Appreciation Month. Maybe, like, mail him a fruitcake or something, you know? Say thank you every once in a while. Anyway, but I would say that in tandem with this, as, as we read through different things, May we push back against false teaching that comes through media. You know, every TV show we watch, every movie we watch, every song that we listen to on the radio has some sort of agenda. It has some sort of teaching behind it. And are we listening and watching selectively? Or are we letting that seep into our family? And false ideologies, are are they coming into our family through that? So we have to be actively pushing against false teaching. And also... We have to think biblically in our selection and pastors of deacons. So in, in 1 Timothy 3, the immediate context of this text, we see that Paul addresses the qualifications of overseers and the qualifications of deacons. And so in thinking through overseers, we have to push back against the cult of personality. Hey, this pastor is cool. This pastor is hip. This pastor is young. Let's, let's listen to him. Let's hire him. No, is he biblically qualified for the task? And same thing goes for deacons. Hey, uh, these guys are, are business owners. These guys are, are pretty nice dudes. We should probably let them in. Okay, are they biblically qualified? And so as we move forward, and Pastor Tim's doing an awesome job in helping us think through that, but as we move forward in the future, we have to think biblically when it comes to these things. So in verse 14 and verse 15, we see the call of the church. In the latter half of verse 15, we see the characteristics of the church. The characteristics of the church. Paul calls the church two things, and these titles work harmoniously together. First, he calls the church the church of the living God. And as people of the living God, we actually have a rich heritage in the Old Testament. So in Joshua 3, in verse 10... Joshua tells the nation of Israel, hey, we're about to go into this foreign territory, but have confidence because the living God is with us. In 1 Samuel 17, starting in verse 26, uh, David uh, is hearing Goliath taunt the Israelite army. And he's like, guys, how dare he taunt the people in the army of the living God? In Jeremiah 10:10, we see that the prophet. Is telling the people listen the Lord the Living God is with you so we have a rich heritage of being the people of the Living God but we also know in this new covenant that we have a true and better representation of this Living God because Jesus died but Jesus has risen and he is reigning and he is reigning well so why on earth does the Apostle Paul call the church the church of the living God? It's to give us boldness. He's saying, Christian, we don't worship an idol made out of clay. We don't worship an idol made out of wood. We don't worship a prophet who says things and then dies. We don't worship all these false teachers or these false things. We don't worship these... Gods that can't follow through. We worship the true, the living, the righteous God who is for us. He is with us. He is on our side. So have boldness that we worship the true and living God. So in light of this boldness, he also calls the church a pillar and buttress of truth. A pillar and buttress of truth. Now, we know what pillars are, right? Like, we drive down Paint Street in Chillicothe and we can see different buildings have these beautiful, ornate pillars. But buttress, we don't use that word often. To be honest, it's kind of weird. So what on earth is that? A buttress is actually, a, a, it's built up against a wall. It's, help, it's made to reinforce a wall. And you're going to see something like that in, like, an old fort or a castle. It looks something like this. Right? You have this cathedral and these, these supports that are built up against a wall. So what is the Apostle Paul saying? He's saying, you know what, Christian? What we're called to do is lift high and uphold the truth. And this example is not lost on the church at Ephesus. So here's what's going on in Ephesus at the time. Okay? In Ephesus, there was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. There was this big, beautiful temple, and it was the temple of Artemis. And people from all walks of life would come, and they would worship this false god. And so the Apostle Paul is saying, hey, you know what? I know you guys feel like aliens. I know you guys feel like foreigners. I know you guys feel out of place, and everything around you in culture is telling you that that what you believe is wrong. But you know what? Every day you pass these pillars. Every day you see these pillars holding up this gigantic roof. But you know, as the people of God, you are called to stand just as strong, just as resolute, and just as firm. And you are called to uphold truth. To be honest, it was hard for the church at Ephesus to uphold truth. And if we're, if we're being real, it's hard for us to uphold truth, too. You're saying, hey, what do you mean by that, Dan? We live in a culture of moral relativism. Moral relativism. You'll, you'll probably hear it played out like this. Someone will say, oh, yeah, that, that religion, that, that Christian stuff, that Jesus stuff, that's good for you, but, but I have my own thing. You know, the, and that, that's what works for me. What's good for you works for you, but what works for me is, you know, that, that just works for me. You know, as as pillars of truth in the church, I'd encourage us to lovingly, graciously, tactfully, but firmly push back against that thinking. That what's good for you is good for you, and what's good for me is good for me. Because here's the conversation that you could possibly have with that person. You could say, okay, um, what's good for, you know, your truth is that, you know, you want to sit on your front porch, you want to drink iced tea, you just want to enjoy watching the leaves change colors, enjoy the fall afternoon. Well, my truth is, I want to put a potato sack on your head, hit you with a pinata, and steal your garden gnome. My truth is, I love garden gnomes, and I want to steal your garden gnome. The person would be like, what are you talking about, weirdo? That's ridiculous. Well, that's my truth. I want to I want to have a garden gnome. And, and these people will say, well, maybe, you know, cultures develop their own truths. Well, we can push back against that as well. Because in that line of thinking, you cannot say murder and injustice and theft is wrong. You can make rules about it, but you cannot say that those things are wrong. Because, hey, maybe there's another culture that thinks that their truth is right. So we have to live and we have to operate practically under the idea... That there is an objective moral reality. Well, this person who we're probably having a conversation with, let's call him Steve. If there's a Steve here, I'm sorry, uh, I'll probably love you, Steve. So, uh, there, so we'll call this guy Steve. And Steve is saying, "Well, how do you know Christianity's true? How do you know the Bible's true? How do you know that you have the right way?" Well, Steve, I'm glad you asked. Number one. We serve a living God, and because he said so is good enough, right? But on top of that, in in Colossians 3, 2, we know that the the God is God over knowledge. He is the Lord of all wisdom. He is the Lord of logic. He he desires that we love him with our minds. And archaeology and science and history, all these man-made tools actually point to the glory of God So we're going to actually look at those tools and how they point to the glory of God. We can see in the Bible that there are claims in Scripture, and we can actually verify them with these tools. So number one, how do we know the Bible's true? Well, the Bible first is reliable. The Bible is reliable. There is internal consistency within the text. So the Bible is self-consistent despite being written uh, by more than 40 different writers, over a time span of 2,000 years, it was written in three different languages, and it was written all over the known world. Yet, even in this, we can see that the meta-narrative and the big idea of Scripture remains consistent. But we don't even just have to rely on internal consistency. We can also rely on an overabundance of manuscripts that have withstood the harshest textual criticism. So, what do I mean by that? Let's take the New Testament for example. So, the New Testament, we have 24,633 copies of the New Testament. Okay, we have 24,633 copies. The New Testament was originally written uh, from AD 40 to AD 100. In the earliest copy, is a fragment that was dated at A.D. 125. So over these thousands of years, in these thousands and thousands and thousands of copies, we see that the main content, the main theological ideas in the primary truths stay consistent. Maybe there's an ancient um, comma that's not supposed to be there, right? But the the main theme, the main ideas, and the main content stay consistent. So what does that tell us? It tells us that the original words that the authors conveyed are what we are reading. Their content is what we're reading today. So we know that the Bible is reliable, but we also know the Bible is verifiable. You got to love the pastor rhyme. I, kinda, I, I, was, I was just too clever as I was studying, right? Um, the Bible is verifiable. So archaeology corresponds with Scripture. Um, we see that an excavation of the city of Jericho. Um, we see that the walls fell, uh, and it, it corresponds with the biblical narrative. In Genesis 14, too, we see there's a th- five cities on the plain described in that passage, uh, and people thought that those weren't uh, in existence, but actually ancient documents uh, showed that these five cities were a part of a trade route. And also the Hittite people. They were thought to be mythical. They thought, oh man, these people don't exist. Until in the 1900s, we found ruins of their city. The Bible also contains fulfilled prophecy. We don't have uh, a random Uncle Tom just like saying, hey, we, this, is, uh, this is something that's going to happen in the future, and it doesn't happen. Uh, we have prophets in the Bible who say things, and they come to pass. There's several examples of this. But... We're going to name one. The prophet Daniel predicted that the rise and fall of the Greek and Roman empires would happen hundreds of years before they came to pass. We also see that the Bible gives us divine insight into science, right? In Isaiah 40, 22, we read of the constantly expanding universe. In Job 26, 10, we read of the spherical nature of the earth. And in Genesis, we read that The continents were one before the flood. And we can go further into how do we know things are true. We can go into the correspondence test. We can go into the coherence test. You know, the law of uh, non-contradiction. We can go into the practicality test. We can go into all those different things. Those are another conversation for another day. If you guys want to do that, email me. We'll grab coffee at roast. But ultimately, we can go back and forth on this, but we need to look finally at Jesus, who he is and what he's done. Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Jesus fulfilled prophecy that he had no control over, where he was born, that the magi adored him, where he was buried, but he also fulfilled things in his mission and how he preached and how he was rejected by the Jews and Gentiles and his persecution and how he entered into Jerusalem on a donkey and how he was betrayed by a friend, how he's falsely accused, how he was silent under accusation and, and how he was mocked and how he was killed. We see that Jesus fulfilled all these things, but someone could probably come and say, well, you know what? All the disciples just got down in like an ancient bunker and they had a giant map on the wall. And they, they read the prophecy and they made Jesus' story fit. So can you really say that Jesus is who he is because he fulfilled prophecy? Well, maybe. That's, you can make a claim for that. But most all of the disciples were tortured and brutally murdered because of their faith. They had everything to gain and nothing to lose by saying, you know what, Jesus, this is all a lie. But they stood firm on truth. And they said, you know what? Jesus is who he says he is and he's done what he says he has done. There's also no good alternative to the resurrection. You know, one explanation is that the disciples robbed Jesus' grave and took the body. Okay, so a bunch of random guys came and fought the ancient version of a Navy SEAL. And they stole the body and got it out. That just doesn't make any sense. And Rome would have squished that rebellion. Or maybe Jesus didn't really die. He was just kind of put into the tomb with some medicine and stuff. And then he kind of escaped when the dust settled. In ancient text and even in the biblical text, we see that Jesus was beaten beyond recognition. And so someone beaten that badly can't just pull himself up by his bootstraps and say, all right, guys. I'm going to work through this. There's no good alternative to the resurrection. And so we as Christians can know that we stand on truth. So here's the point of application for us, church. Are we living it out? Are we living like pillars of truth? Or do we live like God exists? It is so easy for us, it's so easy for all of us to just kind of add God into our lives kind of put them on a line item, you know, God, I love you, I know you changed my life, but let me get some money stuff taken care of, and then I'll kind of start giving to you, you know. God, I know you changed, changed my life, I know you can do anything, but you know, this sports league is going to put my kid in a good position for a scholarship, and, and they play on Sunday, we'll do this for a couple of years, and we'll you know, we'll figure this out, God, I, I believe in you. I know that you have the power to change lives, but man, I just feel really weird praying for my coworkers. You know what? When we become disciples of Christ, we're called to wholly and completely surrender our lives to Him. And He isn't just an agenda or something we add on. He is Lord, He is King, and we submit ourselves to that reality. So in the first half of this passage, we see the call of the church, we see the characteristics of the church, and finally in verse 16, we see the song of the church. The song of the church. Let's read it. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, Believed on in the world, taken up in glory. You ever wonder why we sing in church? Like, we never really do that in any other aspect of our culture, right? Like, if we go to a Reds game, we may sing, sweet Caroline, Pa, blah blah, right? Or we'll sing, take me out to the ball game, right? We'll, we'll sing that one. Or maybe if we go to, like, a concert, we're really into the musician, we'll sing along with him or her. Or, you know, back in the olden days, like, we'd gather around the piano and maybe, like, sing Christmas carols or something. But generally, as a society, we don't, like, gather together to sing. So why does the church sing? Well, in Colossians 3 Paul tells the church that he wants the word of Christ to dwell in the church richly. He wants the word of God to dwell in us richly. How, does, how do we do that? We sing. We sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So as we hear truth and as we understand truth, we're able to memorize it. We're able to say it as one voice and we're able to internalize it. Through the gift and the tool of singing. So, in these six lines, we see truth. We see a glorious picture of the gospel in this ancient hymn. So, let's go through it line by line quickly. First, we see that Jesus was manifested in the flesh. He was manifested in the flesh. So Jesus is the image of the invisible God. God, Jesus is God made visible. He has always existed. The Son of God was never created. He has always existed. And Jesus is fully God and fully man. And in Jesus' humanity, yes, he was born. Uh, He grew up. He hungered. He thirsted. He had emotions. He had an earthly ministry. But he was without sin. Guys, remember Adam in Genesis 1. Like Adam was the first man who failed. Jesus is the true and better Adam. And he has come to be the perfect sacrifice for our sins. And he did die for our sins when he was manifested in the flesh. But he's also vindicated by the Spirit. Vindicated by the Spirit. And uh, this is a weird phrase. Uh, it took me It took me a little bit to try to figure out what on earth does this mean so christ 's vindication is his resurrection. Everyone who claimed that he was a false teacher that he was either he wasn't really the Messiah, any false claims to his deity are refuted at the empty tomb. Jesus is who he says he is because he rose from the dead, so he was vindicated. And also, by the Spirit, this is a phrase that gives us a beautiful glimpse at the inner working of the Trinity. And I know we just did apologetics, but we're about to do systematic theology. So hang in. It's going to be a lot of fun. We can do it. We can hang in there. It's like, oh, Dan, what are you talking about? No, it's going to be great. It's going to be great. By the Spirit. So the question is, who raised Jesus from the dead? Who raised Jesus from the dead? Well, Jesus prophesied that he would raise himself from the dead. God the Father, uh, it was said that he would raise Jesus from the dead. And uh, we see in, in passages like this, in Romans one four and Romans 8.11, that the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. So, who raised Jesus? Ultimately, God did. The Trinity was active and present in the resurrection of Christ. So, the next question we have is what is the Holy Spirit's role in this resurrection? What is the Holy Spirit's role in the resurrection? And so we're going to put a pin in that, and we're actually going to think through this for a second and look back at Jesus. As I mentioned before, Jesus came to earth and dwelt among us. He was fully God and fully man. We know that when Jesus came to earth, he emptied himself. Uh, does that mean he like lost 75% of his God power No, not at all. He was still fully God, okay? But he refused to use the rights and privileges of his deity. How many dads do we got out here? Yeah, dads. Yeah, okay, awesome. And some, your kiddos, when your kiddos were like three, again, I have a three and a half year old, these are examples you're getting. Um, When your kids are like three and you guys wrestled, did you use your full weight and your full strength to tackle your kid to the ground? No, you'd be a terrible parent. Of course you didn't. In the same way, Jesus did not access the rights and privileges of his divinity. And so when Jesus came to earth, he was still fully God, fully man. I'm about to make a big statement. Again, at our conversation and roast, we can talk through this. But Jesus did miracles through the power of the Holy Spirit when he was serving in his earthly ministry. So we come back to our question. What was the Holy Spirit's role in the resurrection? Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit, raised Jesus from the dead. Now that's kind of crazy, right? And But, but when I say that one person of the, whole, of the Trinity is active, all three persons are active as well. And that's just kind of like What on earth? How is one person active, but all three persons are acting in unity and harmony? Well, here's the beautiful thing about truth. Truth exists outside of us, and we don't have to necessarily understand something for it to be true. And that's the beautiful thing about the Trinity, that we can get to a certain point within our understanding of the Trinity, but at some point we just have to marvel at who our God is and just worship who he is and what he's done. So Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit has proceeded from the Father, uh, has raised Christ from the dead. But we also see that Jesus was seen by angels. And this isn't something that we talk about a lot. Angels were kind of cool in the 90s with touch by an angel and, and those different things. But, like, we don't really talk about angels anymore. So why on earth are we bringing this up? Well, angels attended to Jesus throughout his whole earthly ministry, right? They heralded his birth. They were with him at the temptation. They were there at the, at the empty tomb, and they were there at the ascension. The presence of angels further point to the divinity and deity of Jesus. We also see that Jesus was proclaimed among the nations so after he rose he commanded his disciples to go and preach the gospel and then Jesus was believed on in the world the disciples were faithful and they started in Jerusalem and then to Judea and Samaria and then it spread to the known world and we are beneficiaries to the disciples faithfulness and steadfastness and then Jesus was taken up into glory After Jesus rose from the dead, uh, his salvific work was accomplished and accepted by the Father. And he rose in the air and he reigns at the right hand of God and he reigns well. This doesn't necessarily happen chronologically, but that doesn't make it any less true. And perhaps it gives us a picture of one day when all the world is made right And we see a new heavens and a new earth, and we are singing, worthy is the Lamb. So in conclusion, Christian, stand for truth. We hold within our hands the absolute truth of God's word. We hold the standard by which we should live. So let us hold it up and lift it high. In this culture of uncertainty, in this culture of division, in this culture of hate, We know the truth, so let us live it out. You know, there are four people, four groups in this room. Number one, there's the Christian who's struggling with sin. Yes, you've confessed Christ. Yes, you say, Jesus is Lord. But there's some dark pocket in your heart that you're holding back, and there's a sin that you are struggling with and you say you're going to deal with it, but you don't. It's this habitual thing. Confess this. And, and when you confess sin, Jesus is faithful and just to forgive us of sin and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So if that's you, Christian, confess your sin. Or we deal with the sin of self-sufficiency. We say, you know what? God kind of is added into my agenda. Practically, my God is my checkbook. But you know what? When, if everything is stripped away, if all we're left with is Christ, is he enough? Is he sufficient? He is. He is good, and he is better. So those who are struggling with self-sufficiency hold fast to the gospel. There's some in here who are struggling with suffering who say, you know what? It took all the strength I had just to get to this seat. If that's you, God is near to the brokenhearted. He is faithful. He is good. And when we are struggling and suffering, here's what I encourage you with. Number one, feel those feelings. Don't try to numb them with Facebook. Don't try to numb them with pizza. Don't try to numb them with Netflix. Feel the struggle. Feel the suffering. But don't recite The wickedness, don't recite the struggle. Don't recite and regurgitate and ruminate on all the struggle in your life. That doesn't honor God. Recounting God's faithfulness is the only thing that's going to get you through. Yes, this moment really, really stinks, but God is true. God is good, and God is faithful. So if you're struggling this morning, understand that reality. Or or maybe you're far from Christ. Christ. You're saying, hey, I'm, I'm still trying to kick the tires on this whole religion thing. Today is the day of salvation. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So don't wait. Confess him. Repent of yourself and give your life wholly and completely to Christ. In response to God's word, we're going to sing together. I'll be, here up, I'll be up here for a couple minutes. Uh, I'll be glad to talk with anyone, uh, encourage anyone. Know, know this, church, all of your pastoral staff is, is for you. We love you. We want to encourage you however we can. And if it's in this moment, just say, hey, uh, I need a pastor to pray for me. Let me do that. If you're like me, you want to kind of process things and think through things in a smaller group, let me know. We want you and we want to encourage you in your faith. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing through the whole song. We're going to sing all glory be to Christ. I'll be up here for a few minutes, but we are going to sing in response to God's word. Father, wherever season of life we are in, God, help us to boldly stand for your truth. Guide us. And God, whatever barriers are in our lives, whatever struggles are in our lives, whatever sin is in our lives, God, help us just to confess that. And God, let us live an unhindered life for your fame and for your glory. Guide our church in Jesus' name. Amen.